Growing up as children, when my father would go on trips abroad to preach, we, of course, would miss him very much. We would long to see him, but more importantly, we would long to wait with anticipation what he will bring back for us. As little kids, we were excited and, and fascinated by things such as keychains and magnets, uh, and we would be excited with the things that he brought from the places he would go. As we grew a little bit older, we were more excited, honestly, about the things he brought back than about him coming back. However, as we grew older as teenagers, honestly, we just weren't excited anymore with the things that he brought back. I just came back from a conference uh, speaking uh, yesterday, and uh, I'm so glad my children are still small, because they're still excited with the little things I bring them. Yes, they will grow up, and they may not like the things I bring for them, but hopefully they will always long to see their father. In the scriptures, we are told to long for his appearance. We are told to long for the coming of our Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us there's a crown that is associated for those who long for the coming of our Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. My friends, if you long for the coming of the Lord, if you long to see Jesus again, the Bible says there is a crown that awaits you, the crown of righteousness. And so I challenge you with this question. Do you long for the coming of our Lord? Do you yearn for Him to come back? Do you desire, Lord, come back quickly? If you don't have this yearning in your heart, then, then perhaps you need to have some attitudes that are changed in your heart. Because when He comes, He's not going to bring back keychains and magnets. He's going to bring with Him some pretty neat stuff. And we're going to take a look at those pretty neat things that He brings back with Him a little bit later. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 2, as we continue our series in the book of Daniel. We've been studying the book of Daniel in a series entitled Fearless. How can we stand fearless in this world? Daniel, chapter 11, verse 2. We're going to go to chapter 12, verse 3. Here in these passages, we remember from last week, that we talked about how God encouraged Daniel when he was down. When Daniel was down, he was tired. He was well over his 80 years old. He was going to be shown this last vision as recorded in the book of Daniel. And he was tired and God sent an angel to encourage him. And now we're going to study the actual vision itself. This vision will show what will happen to the nation of Israel. It will bring us to the time until the return of the true king, Jesus Christ where he will reign on David's throne at the millennium. When we look at chapter 11, we will see the plan of God unfold. And then we will see the things he will bring back when he returns. The book of Daniel chapter 11 is difficult to understand. It is a long chapter. There are 45 verses, but we're going to work on this and understand this together. 
chapter 11, verse 2 begins with this. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. The Bible tells us in verse 2 that Daniel and his present leadership, Cyrus I of the Persian Empire, will be succeeded by four more rulers. They are Chambises, Cyrus's son, followed by Pseudo-Smyrnus, Darius I, and then Xerxes, also known in the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. And we know historically that Xerxes was the most powerful, influential, and wealthy of the four. As the Bible speaks of in verse 2, he will fight wars against Greece and he will lose. The Bible then tells us in verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. We have studied him. This mighty king is King Alexander the Great, whose conquests extended as far as India before his death at a very young age of 32 in 323 B.C. The Bible then continues in verse 4. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others beside these. We know historically that after Alexander's death, he left no heir. And so his kingdom was divided amongst his four general, Seleucus over the Syrian uh, and Mesopotamian area, to the south, Ptolemy of, over Egypt, Lysimachus over Trace and portions of modern-day Turkey, and Cassander, which is general over Macedonia and Greece. And this was prophesied as we studied in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, the four horns that come out of the notable horn. Now in verses 5 to 20, there is conflict between the line of the king of the north and the king of the south. There are wars between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Verse 5 to verse 20 talks about this conflict. Now, if we had time to study these verse 16 verses, we will know that the Bible is 100% accurate. I encourage you to go back and read verse 5 to verse 20 and line it up with the historical accounts of the times of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And you will see that it matches up 100%. And that encourages us to trust in the Scripture as to its historicity as well as its to its inerrancy. These 16 verses tells of wars between the generals that follow Alexander, between their children, their grandchildren, uh, and so on. The reason this is important to us is as they attack one another, one from the north, one from the south, they would often go through the land of Israel. And every time they would attack the south, the north from the south, Israel would switch allegiances. They would be conquered. And when the south attacked the north, they would be conquered as well. And so Israel was a time of great turmoil. In, in verse 21 to verse 35, it talks about one specific king of the north. His name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He is the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 that grows to be the great horn. Fifteen verses are dedicated to Antiochus from verses 21 to verse 35. Not only because he reigns persecution amongst the Jews, but more importantly, he will foreshadow the Antichrist. 
what he does to the Jewish people, what he does will be foreshadowed and will be done by the future Antichrist who will desecrate and destroy the land of Israel. In fact, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes attacks the southern kingdom of Egypt twice. But in both occasions, he is turned back and he is frustrated. The second time when he tries to attack the Ptolemies in the south, uh, they had entered a pact with the Romans. And he didn't want to incur the wrath of the Romans, which was a growing power at that time. And so he left very defeated. As a spoiled little brat who wanted to blame someone because he had brought his great army from the north to the south, he passed through Jerusalem and he decided to take out his frustration on the Jews in Jerusalem. And so the second time he left in defeat and as he passed by Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple. He desecrated the temple. He did not allow the Jews to offer their daily sacrifices to the Lord. He killed tens and thousands of Jewish people. And this is known as the abomination of the desolation. And we've studied this also. Because of these horrible atrocities, the Jewish people rose up. This is known as the Maccabean revolt. This is not written in your Bible. It is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Jewish people rose up and kicked out the Greeks. And finally, they were a free nation. But soon they were conquered by the Romans. And that's why when we begin the Gospels, when we turn to the first page of Matthew in the New Testament, there is a messianic expectation on the part of the people. They are waiting for a Messiah who will incite the second Maccabean revolt, who will overthrow the Romans. That's why these people kept asking Jesus, Jesus, you have come to be the Messiah. Have you come to overthrow the Roman Empire? That is the fervor. There is a messianic complex. They are looking for a savior, but they are looking for a savior in the wrong place. Jesus says, I've come to do the Father's will. My purpose here is to meet a deeper goal, which is to save you from your sin. The Bible then continues in verse 36 to verse 39 of Daniel chapter 11. And here we slow down a bit because in verse 36, we talk about the future Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. The Bible talks about the king in verse 36. This is no longer Antiochus IV. This is the future Antichrist because what the king does in verse 36 to verse 39, Antiochus did not do. And we know the history or the biography of the Antichrist as revealed to us in the scriptures. The Bible tells us that when the rapture occurs of the church, when we are taken away, we are translated. The Bible tells us he will come to power. He will reveal himself. Second Thessalonians says the man of perdition will reveal himself. He is the Antichrist. And there he will unite ten European nations under a European confederacy. He will enter into a peace treaty with Israel, Daniel chapter 9. For three and a half years he will rule over Europe. And then the Bible tells us the last three and a half years he will rule over the world. 
The Bible says he shall do according to his own will. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. His purpose is to glorify and exalt himself. He will blaspheme the God of heaven. And it will carry out until the end of time. This is the seventh of the 70th seven in Daniel chapter 9. This is the great tribulation. Look with me in verse 37. The Bible says, The Antichrist shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. We learn more about the person of the Antichrist. He shall regard neither the God of his father, reveals to us that he will not respect his religious heritage. Apparently, the Antichrist will come from a very religious family but he will abandon the religion of his youth. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelations chapter 17, he will set aside all organized religions. In the tribulation, he will direct worship on him. He will set himself as the sole object of worship. The first thing he will do is he will unite all the world's religion. He will unite the world's religion, and then he will direct that religion to worship him. Now, you may say there are so many religions in this world. How can they all come together? My friends, the reality is there are only two religions in this world. A religion where you have salvation by faith and a salvation by works. Every other religion outside of Christianity is a salvation by works. You must do something so that you can go to heaven. You must do good works to cover your bad works so that you can go to heaven. And if you study world religion, and we just had a class in our adult Bible class, you know that every religion is about doing good. And by doing good, perhaps, perhaps then you will go to heaven. In Islam, you do good. And they're not sure if they will go to heaven or not. They always say, if Allah will. If God, their God, allows them to go to heaven. In Buddhism, the idea is to reach the higher level of nirvana. And by doing so, you you reach a transcendental state where you have no more desires. And you reach that state of, quote-unquote, heaven by doing good. However, in Christianity is the only religion that says the work of salvation has been completed on the cross. You can be sure that you will go to heaven when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you. On the cross, Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The work of salvation has been completed on the cross. And so it will be very easy in the end times for the Antichrist to bring together the world's religion because he says, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about doing good for you. And that's what the Bible says. But then he will turn his back and he will cause all to worship him. Some have looked at verse 37 and they thought that the Antichrist must be homosexual because he neither regards the desire of women. But you must understand, the desire of women does not refer to one's orientation. The desire of women was that cultural experience at that time, where every woman at that opportunity was was hoping, was praying, that they would bear the Messiah. Hopefully they would be blessed. And that's why you remember when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said to Mary, Mary, greatly beloved, you are blessed because you will carry the Messiah. Verse 37 has the idea that the Antichrist and his life's mission 
will be to oppose the Messiah. He will oppose the desire of women, which is the Messiah. He will direct worship, the world's worship, to him. Verse 38 to verse 39. But in their place you shall honor a God of fortresses. And a God which his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. He shall act against the strongest fortress with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance in glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. The Bible tells us the Antichrist will be vastly wealthy. He will be very rich. In fact, the Bible tells us he will have The God of fortresses means he will use as his strength military force. He will assemble the largest army in the world. He will promote military strength. His God is in the fortress of himself. And so in verse 36 to verse 39, we get a glimpse of this future antichrist, this this future king who will seek to destroy the work of God. Now, in verse 40, there is a war. Verse 40 to verse 43 talks about a war. Not everyone is happy. The world will not simply bow down and kowtow to this man. There will be people who will not be happy with him. And they will attack him. Look at verse 40. At the time of the end, the Bible says, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. The Bible tells us also in the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 that there will be a war in the middle of the tribulation. In the middle of the tribulation, or the second half of the tribulation, the forces of the north, Russia, and the forces of the south, perhaps the Arab countries, will come and attack Israel. The Bible tells us because there is a peace treaty with Israel... The Antichrist, as head of Europe, is obligated to come and aid Israel. And the Bible says he will challenge the king of the north and the king of the south, and he shall overwhelm them. He shall defeat them. We know that the Bible talks about the king of the north. The king of the north is Russia. Russia will play an important part in biblical prophecy. Russia will be very important in the end times. After the fall of the Soviet Union in the 80s, a lot of people thought the Bible was wrong. Russia will no longer be a world power. They were basically broke. The Cold War was not fought on the battlefield. It was fought in the pocketbooks. And the West and America had a lot more money. And Russia was basically broke, and that's why the Soviet Union fell apart. Well, we thought, and many thought, the pundits thought that Russia will never be the world power that it is. Well, look at Russia now. In fact, with their market capital economy, they are stronger than ever. They are able to invest in new planes and and ships and and military strength. Uh, Vladimir Putin has as his philosophy to have Russia as one of the world's power, which it is. In fact, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, warns the people of Israel, Son of man... Set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief princes of Meshech and Tubal, and the prophesy against them, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1 and 2. If you look at this ancient prophecy, Meshech is an ancient name for what is now modern-day Moscow. 
Tubal is in the area of the Ural Mountains, which is in modern-day Ukraine. Uh, Gog and Magog, this is the area of the Caucasus, uh, the Black Sea region. The Bible says, Son of man, those who are wise, Israel, watch out for the north. They are coming. In fact, the Bible is also very clear. Five verses later in chapter 38, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya will be with them. Now, just look at your newspaper today. Persia, which is modern-day Iran, has been in our newspapers today, as well as Libya and even Ethiopia, which is the Horn of Africa. The Bible tells us they will ally with Russia. You know Persia, Iran, is building nuclear weapons. The world knows that. And so the world wants to sanction them at the UN Security Council. But the problem is, guess what? Their good friends, the Russians, always veto any sort of sanction. The Bible prophesied this long time ago. Iran will be allied with the North. In the early 70s, for some of you who lived through that, you know Iran. Iran was a friend of the U.S. under the Shah of Iran. It was under the Ayatollah who overthrew, and then you had the Iran affair, the hostage-taking, and the American embassy. Overnight, Iran went from an ally of the West to become an ally of Russia. But the Bible already predicts that, and the Bible will come true. Note what it says in verse 41 to verse 43. He, the Antichrist, shall also enter the glorious land. That means he will go into Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. He, in this middle of the war, will then rule the world because he will overthrow, he will conquer many countries. But he shall escape, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Verse 42, He shall stretch out his hands against these countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Thus in the south, he shall have power, note this, over the treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt, also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at its heel. We know today there is a mad rush into Africa. Why? Because of all the natural resources, when Libya fell, if you just watch the news, when Libya fell, the country that had the most expatriates in Libya were not the Americans. It was the Chinese, followed by the British. Why? Everyone knows about the natural resources of Libya. And the Chinese, and the Chinese government had already sent a lot of engineers to go look into the oil fields of Libya. BP Petroleum, the British, no. The Bible says the Antichrist will know of these riches, verse 43, when he takes over the world, the treasures of Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia, the treasures of Africa will be under him. But note this, the Bible says in verse 41, he will not have control over the entire world geographically. You see, the Bible tells us that God has set aside certain areas, the ancient land of the Edomites and the Moabites and the prominent people of the Ammonites as their place of refuge. You see, God is a gracious God. God disciplines his people, but God also sets up for them a place of refuge. This area towards the Dead Sea is the land of the Moabites and the Edomites. This is a land that pretty much has nothing. It's a bunch of caves, 
desert, but it's a great place to pay hide and seek. You won't find each other for a thousand years. If you look at the Old Testament, this is the traditional hiding place, a place of refuge for Israel. When David ran from Saul, David hid in the caves of En Gedi. And En Gedi is in this area towards the southwest region of the Dead Sea. You remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were found in this area as well. And they weren't able to find these Dead Sea Scrolls written by the Essenes for more than 2,000, 3,000 years. The ancient city of Petra is also in this area. Just to give you an idea that it is so hard to find this place, they were not able to find the ancient city of Petra for over 2,000 years. Even though at one point it was one of the largest trading cities in the world, it took a British archaeologist to, to, to dress himself as a Bedouin to be able to convince the Bedouins to tell him where the secret city was. And now it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This area in the Dead Sea is where God will protect His people. This is where God will have refuge for His people. The, God, the Bible says the Antichrist will have no hold over this area. I realize that most of you are believers. If God were to come in the next five minutes, I hope He does. I can't wait for His coming. If God were to come in the next five minutes, we would be raptured. We would not go through the Great Tribulation. For those of us who have placed our trust in Him. Now, there may be some I don't know, who have not placed their trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They will not be raptured. They will go through the Great Tribulation. My advice to you is that you will quickly purchase a ticket to Israel. And there you will go buy a piece of land near the deserts of the Dead Sea. So that at least... Hopefully, Lord willing, if God's hand of blessing is upon you, you will be able to be shielded from the wrath of the Antichrist. I say this because this will be recorded. And so when we're all raptured and people want to hear this sermon in the future, they will know where God will provide safety. You say, Pastor, what you've just told me is unbelievable. Well, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 to verse 16. And the Olivet Discourse. That means he gave this at the Mount of Olives and he was telling his disciples about the end times. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he says this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist, note this, spoken by Daniel the prophet, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is referring to the unchanging living Word of God. And he acknowledges that the book of Daniel is the Word of God. So he's actually referring to Daniel chapter 11. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, Jesus says, standing in the holy place, standing in Jerusalem, whoever reads, let him understand. What are they to do? Let those who are in Judea, what? Flee to the mountains. Our God is very gracious. In a time of great discipline to his people, he tells them, go. There is a safety place. There is a place of refuge in the mountains of the ancient land of the Moabites and the Edomites. You say, with all the technology, you mean the Antichrist can't find us? I give you an example in the person of Osama bin Laden. How many years did it take them to find him? More than eight years. How was he able to hide in the mountains of Tora Bora? Very simply, he threw away his cell phone. That's it. You can't track someone 
when they give up their modern gadgets. Look at verse 44 with me. Verse 44 to verse 45 brings us to the end of the great tribulation. After the 21 judgments written about in Revelations chapter 6 to 18. It says here in verse 44, But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. The Bible tells us there is growing dissent. He may be the king of the world, but there is growing dissent and opposition. And this brings us to the end of the tribulation. The Antichrist, using Jerusalem as his capital, will hear a report. He will hear a report that there is a massive army that is being assembled in the east. Revelations chapter 9, verse 16, speaks of an army in the east that numbers 200 million men. Now, you've got to understand that when the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation was written, there were not even 200 million men on the face of this earth. The Bible tells us that in the end times, 200 million men from Asia will march to Israel to begin the battle of Armageddon. Today, according to military historical facts, there are more than 200 million men simply in the Red Army of China. Seven of the ten largest armies in the world are right here in Asia. Not counting or including North Korea and South Korea and Indonesia, Pakistan, India, and the list goes on. The Bible says the Antichrist will, will hear alarming report that from the east, 200 million men will march. That's why Asia will play a very important part in biblical prophecy. And we're living right in the center of Asia. Also, attacks from the north will happen. Perhaps the king of the north, Russia, is not very happy. He was defeated the first time, and so he will come again. And they will all culminate, the Bible says in the book of the Revelation, in the valley of Megiddo. That's why in the Hebrew, it is called Armageddon or Armageddon. Verse 44 to verse 45 speaks of the battle of Armageddon. There they will assemble to fight the Antichrist, but there then the Holy then the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, will come, and they will turn their guns towards Him. Very quickly, another detail, verse 45, tells us that His capital, He will place the tents of His palaces between the seas, between the Mediterranean Sea and the glorious Holy Mountain. This is, of course, Jerusalem. When we come to this point, it seems like the Antichrist is in charge. It seems as if He is King of the world. It seems that no one can come against Him. But wait, the true king comes. The second coming of Christ. The true king will come. And when the true king comes, he will bring with him four rewards. Four things. And these four things are, are four application points that we take away. Because we don't simply bring back with us knowledge. That knowledge must be lived out in the life we live today. The first of these gifts that he brings back. When the king returns, is in verse 45, the second portion. Yet, the Bible says, he, the Antichrist, shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19, when the Antichrist battles God, or Jesus Christ, at the, end, at the, at the battle of Armageddon, one word from the Lord wipes out the armies of the Antichrist. We as his saints will come back with him. 
And the Bible tells us he will bring with him, number one, victory. When the true king returns, he will not bring with him trinkets of, of magnets and keychains. He brings with him, my friends, victory. That's why I reiterate this over and over again. I love biblical prophecy. I love talking about it. This church speaks about biblical prophecy because it talks about the victory of Christ over Satan. Our Lord is victorious. And when he comes again, he will bring with him victory. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 14 tells us the king shall, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. The reason a lot of us are so dejected and so depressed and we wonder why evil men in this world seem to succeed. It's okay. And I can say it's okay, not because that's the right thing to say, but because a God of justice will bring victory when he comes again. He will destroy the forces of evil and he will bring victory. Nowadays, we seek vengeance. We, we want to make things right. We want to have our, our, our moral victories, but we get frustrated because the wiles of evil men seem to overcome the things of good. But my friends, let, let me challenge you. It's not worth the fight because the fight is not ours. Give it to God. The fight is his and the fight is already won. If people annoy you and there are people who make you angry and people who've gotten the better end of the deal from you, there are some recourses that don't be a stepping mat, but give them and turn them over to God. And the God of justice and the God of vengeance, who loves his people very much, will deal with them in a severe way. Because when the king returns, he brings with him victory and defeats evil. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12, the second thing the king brings back. At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, at that time, note this, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, which is the book of life. The Bible tells us that when Christ comes again, he comes victorious. He comes as one who delivers. The second thing that the true king brings back with him is that he brings back deliverance. He delivers his people, not just in the nick of time as the superheroes do, but at his perfect time. You see, one of the features of the Great Tribulation is that it is almost a second holocaust. Satan and the Antichrist will wage war against the Jewish people. They seek to annihilate the Jewish people. But God says, I have sent my archangel i've sent my most powerful angel michael to care for your people to care for the israelites and god has been a very gracious god to them he says there will be a remnant everyone whose name was found written in the lamb's book of life many jews will come to know christ they will look upon their messiah the one whom they rejected and there will be a national deliverance and there will be a remnant. Satan has been trying to get rid of the Jewish people throughout the centuries. God says, I will deliver my people. As I made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bring it to fruition in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. 
Now you may say, Pastor, I don't care much about Israel. I'm not even Jewish. You talk a lot about Israel. Why should I care about Israel? My friends, yes, the Bible does talk a lot about Israel, God's chosen people. God's chosen people to be the light of the world. But we are also His chosen. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing about how God deals with Israel is this. How God deals with Israel is how He deals with us. And as God has been very patient with Israel, God is very patient with us. You see, my friends, we are very much like the people of Israel. We are stubborn. We are knuckleheads. We are prideful. We want to do things our own way, just like the Jewish people. A great God gave them many blessings, but they they turned their back on Him. And the fact that God didn't strike them dead on the spot is a wonderful encouragement to us because every week I do it myself. I turn my back on God. I stop trusting Him. But God is so patient with me. And as the God of Israel deals with him with grace and mercy, God deals with us with grace and mercy as well because it is the same God, the God Yahweh. As God has been faithful to them, as God provides a place of refuge, even amidst discipline, so he does to us as well. As the God of Israel, he disciplines his children, not because he hates them, but because he loves them so much that he doesn't want them to get hurt. That same God disciplines us. And we may hate God for it. And we say, God, why do you discipline us? But he disciplines us because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us to get hurt. In fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 9 to 11, as the book of Romans, one of the great books of the Bible, talks about justification and sanctification and how God operates, he uses in Daniel, uh, Romans chapter 9 to 11, the example of the Jewish people. As I have been faithful to the Jewish people, I will be faithful to you. As I have loved them with an everlasting love, I will love you with an everlasting love. Romans chapter 8, right before that, he says, none of you can outrun the love of God. And so that's why we care about Israel. Because of how that God deals with Israel is the same God and how he deals with us. As God sends Michael to watch over Israel, His people, Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, tells us that our God sends us guardian angels as well. The return of the king brings with us deliverance. And I can't wait. I can't wait for the return of the king. Why? Because he will make things right. He will deliver his people. Look at verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The third thing that the true king brings when he returns is this. He brings with him resurrection. Resurrection. Do you ever think about resurrection, your bodily resurrection as a hope of glory? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that those who die in the Lord, we should not grieve as those who have no hope. But one day the trumpet call of God will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive will be resurrected. One day the Bible promises a body that will be so beautiful because it will be without sin. You think of the most beautiful person on this earth with makeup and everything. And you will be more beautiful than that person because you will be without sin. 
A body whose, a body, a resurrected body whose body will not be ravaged by cancer. A body that is, that will never, never corrupt. The Bible tells us in verse 2 of chapter 12, those who die in the tribulation, the Bible says, when Christ comes again, will be resurrected at the time. They will be resurrected to come and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Those who are unbelieving will be resurrected after the thousand years, for they will come before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will have a resurrected body. The resurrection of us as Christians now will happen at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That should be the great hope. My friends, do you anticipate the coming of Christ? I cannot wait for Christ to come back again. You know why? I hope he comes in the next five minutes. I hope he comes. Because then I don't have to be on a diet anymore. I don't have to struggle with this body that I have. I'm going to have a great body. A body that is not made out of the dust of this earth. I've done enough funerals to tell you it is a sad thing. From dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But the Bible says he will give us a body that is incorruptible, not made from the dust of this earth. Remember this. Resurrection is not reconstruction. A lot of people think that when we are resurrected, God's going to pick through all the ashes of this world. All right, I need Stephen's particles, and he's going to pick all the pieces of Stephen and make a new body with him. That's why, for me, cremation is okay. I plan to be cremated. I'm sharing with you my wishes. I plan to be cremated. There's nothing wrong with that. If I were to be buried, no problem. In about 100 years, I will also be as if I was cremated. I'm not trying to make light of the subject, but that is the reality. Our body was made from the dust of this ground, carbon atoms, and it will return to dust. And I'm thinking in my head that song from the Lion King, that's the circle of life. That's the way it is. When we die and we are buried, we will decay. Our soul and spirit, it is in heaven, but our body decays. I'm sorry not to make fun of this, but it becomes fertilizer. It becomes soil. It's part of a plant. We eat it, and, and that's the circle right there. But the Bible tells us when the resurrection happens, He does not look for the dust particle. So it's okay if you want your ashes scattered in the ocean. No problem. I may think about that. But the reality is this. When Christ comes again, my soul and my spirit will have a new body, a resurrected body. A body that's incorruptible, not ravaged by sin. It will never die. It will have superhuman strength. It will be as Christ. He can eat if he wants. He doesn't have to eat if he doesn't want. And, and, and if you want to know more about the resurrected body, go to the website. Look under the series on heaven. I think it's number three on the series. A whole sermon on the resurrected body. It is an amazing thing. I cannot wait for the return of the king. Because he will bring with him... The resurrection. I will still look like me. I will be recognized when I'm resurrected as Stephen. Uh, it's the idea of, uh, of a plant and the seed. The burial of the body is like the planting of the seed. And the resurrection is like the harvest. The seed is not the same as the plant from which it came from. This body will be gone. Praise God for that. I will have a body that is incorruptible. 
one that is glorified. However, there is also a dark reality, verse 2. All will be resurrected, even those who don't know Christ. We will be resurrected to everlasting life, to glory. Look at verse 2. But they will be resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. This is a sad and a real reminder of the realities of hell. There is a hell. Those who do not believe in Christ as their personal Savior, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are in hell now. And the Bible tells us after the millennium, they will be resurrected. They will have a body, an incorruptible body that stands before the great white throne judgment. And that body will then be thrown into the lake of fire as an eternal punishment. I'm not making light of this, but there's a, there's a very cute bumper sticker, but it gets right to the point. Eternity, your choice. Smoking or non-smoking. That is the reality of hell. You would think otherwise if you told someone, go to hell. Because you, if you knew the realities of hell, you would never wish anyone, I don't care how much you hate them, to go to a place like that. You say, how can a good God, how can a good God allow eternal punishment? And I ask you the question, how can a righteous, just God, whose holiness we cannot stand before, not allow punishment? There's a, a new theology, which is very unbiblical, which speaks of something called annihilation. It says, God is a God of love, and therefore, when people die and they go to hell, they simply disappear, their, their soul and spirit, because they cannot bear the thought of eternal punishment. I'm sorry, as much as I wish that was so, verse 2 says, those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And my friends, instead of worrying about why God does that, it is a charge to us that when Christ comes again, it is too late. So now you must spread the gospel now. You must bring the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to your friends and your family. That is your responsibility as one who walks with the Lord. Whether they accept or not is their responsibility. But your responsibility is that. Do not think there is another chance. Today is the day of salvation. Because when the king returns, he returns with resurrection. Finally, look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Those, note this, who are wise, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The fourth and final thing in this passage that the return of the true king brings is that he brings with him his rewards, a glorious kingdom. He will bring with him his rewards. Those who are wise, those who live their lives faithfully will be like the brightness of the firmament, those who turn many to righteousness, those who bring many to salvation through the spreading of the gospel will be like the stars who shine forever and ever. Those are the rewards that last. How we live on this earth, my friends, will determine how we live in the next. Every cup will be full in heaven, but some cups will be larger than others. We're not talking about success in this earth. We're talking about faithfulness in the work of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you and I, I, want, to, I want to encourage you to, to continue to work for God. 
Whether you're changing diapers at the cradle roll, whether you're teaching choir and those kids driving you up the wall, whether you're coming to choir and practicing every week to sing once a month, whether you're serving as an usher and people yelling at you because they want the door open when you know you're not supposed to, when you are folding bulletins on a Saturday afternoon and no one sees for the Lord, when you're picking up that piece of trash which many people overlook, but you see this as the house of God, that is being faithful to what God calls you to do. Regardless of what other people think, it is that faithfulness that will carry on. God is looking for faithful people. People whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Because the Bible says, my reward is coming. I want to challenge you. Live faithfully. God does not call us to a life of success. God calls us to a life of faithfulness. And so when you serve the Lord, serve with full commitment. This is also a challenge. Serve with faithfulness. If you're on the music team, you come early. If you're on the ushering team, you come early. Because a lot of us have this notion, well, I'm not getting paid. That's true, you're not. You're getting paid in glory. My God will understand. That is not faithful stewardship of God's resources. In fact, the work that you do for the Lord should be of excellence and should shine over the work you have even for your employer. The work of God as you see it, whether in your family as a dad, as a mom, as a child, as an employer, as an employee, that which you do for the Lord, you do with excellence for His name. It's as if you've got a t-shirt on that doesn't advertise your company, but advertises Jesus Christ. And how you live and work on this earth is a reflection of the one you serve. And if you serve him lackadaisically and with an attitude that I don't care, then you do a disservice to the name of God. The return of the king is a return of rewards. You will be rewarded. I cannot wait for the return of the king. Not to say I have lots of rewards. I just hope that the life that I have lived has been a faithful life, consistent with the walk that God wants me to walk. We will suffer on this earth, but we will more than be compensated in glory. I think most of you have heard of Lynn Sanity, Jeremy Lin. The Asian basketball, of which everyone is taking credit. The Chinese are taking credit. The Taiwanese are taking credit. But you know, honestly, he's just American. He's about as American as they come, born in California. You know, we're all proud of him because he looks like us, and we hope to be like him someday. We just need to be a lot taller. But here's the reality. You've got to ask yourself the question, why do we celebrate him? And by the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, who Jeremy Lin is. He's, a, he's an undrafted guard out of Harvard, cut by two NBA team, and within the past two weeks, because as some say all the stars were aligned or the perfect storm was brewing, we say because simply God blessed him, that he had an opportunity to come in on a game they were losing and score a bunch of points. Next five games, he allowed the Knicks on this amazing run. 
I think Statistic has him in the first five games that he started. He scored more points than any other NBA player since the merging with the ABA. And so we're all fascinated by him. Everyone's wearing his jersey. Everyone's saying, this man is successful. And you know what? He is. He is. I'm going to be torn tomorrow morning when they play the Dallas Mavericks. I don't know who to cheer for. But the reality is this. Why do we cheer him? We cheer him because he is successful. We cheer him because he is successful worldly. He can put a basket, a ball through a basket hoop. He can dribble between his legs. He can pass without looking. He's fast. But how come none of us were celebrating him before he made it on the starting point guard position? You see, Jeremy is also an avowed Christian. He's not perfect, but he has a consistent walk with the Lord. And his testimonies are many on Google and YouTube. You can look them up. And he walks with the Lord. But no one celebrated him, even though he could have been celebrated, a star basketball player that led his school to a state championship in California. A star basketball player in Harvard in the Ivy League. But no one celebrated him until he made it successful worldly. Until he was, was worldly successful, then the world, the world celebrated him. But they didn't celebrate him when he was a nobody. And so I've been thinking, if Jeremy Lin never made it big, let's say these two weeks never happened, he's still warming the bench. Carmelo never got hurt. Stoudemire's brother never died. He never got the opportunity to start. Would he still be successful and would you still cheer him on as an NBA player? It's okay, a bench player who walked the talk, who walked with the Lord. You probably wouldn't celebrate his life, the honest truth. You would not celebrate his life because his life was not successful worldly. It was never successful. Before the eyes of God, he was a success already. See, I challenge you, my friends, in the life that you live now, to what success are you aiming your life for? The world loves success story. I was even daydreaming. I wish I was Jeremy Lin. I'm sure a lot of you were. We all love the rags to riches story. We all love being plucked out of obscurity and suddenly being made headline news. Who wouldn't have loved that story? And, and some of you may pray, Lord, give me that chance. If I become famous, when they interview me, I will glorify you and I'll even be humble. You know that thought. But you know the world... They take success people and they take worldly good, feel-good stories. And about two or three years from now, got a couple fat, bad games. The world will eat them, chew them up, spit them out, and we'll move on to the next success story. That's the way it is. So what's the success that you are placing your life in? If you are living faithfully today, walking with the Lord, sight unseen by the rest of the world, you are a success already. And that's not some sort of feel-good rah-rah talk for me. That's the reality of the truth of the Scriptures that says when the true King comes, He will bring with Him the rewards. They are true, and those rewards are forever. 
celebrate each other's faithfulness. Celebrate each other's ministry in the Lord. Encourage them. It is already hard enough that the world doesn't pay attention to spiritual success. Celebrate what truly needs to be celebrated. And it's okay if no one praises you. Because when the true king comes, he will bring you the crown that will never fade away. One day when the Scottish preacher George McDowell was talking with his son, the conversation turned to heaven and the prophet's version of the things of the end. And the son said, Daddy, it seems too good to be true. All the stuff you've told me, it seems too good to be true. Smile across Pastor George's whiskered face. Nice son, he replied. It is just so good. It must be true. It is so good. It must be true. You see, our good God is a good God. And a God that is that good makes it worth our while at the end. It is so good. It must be good. So I end with these words, which I hope are your thoughts as well. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the reminder of the scriptures. Thank you that we look forward to the day for the return of the true king. It is my prayer that when the crowns are being passed out, that at least each one in this church will get the crown of righteousness because we have all longed for your appearing. We all say with our hearts, come, come now. And I'm so excited for your coming, Lord, when you bring with you victory and deliverance, when you will bring resurrection, when you bring our rewards. Indeed, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Father, I think about the good things you've promised. Take away the notion that somehow you're tricking us. It seems too good to be true. As if some sort of pep talk to try to convince us to do what you call us to do. But help us to live with the perspective that says, it is so good, it must be true, because we acknowledge that you are a good God. The God who loves us so. And God who says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming soon with your rewards. Allow us to celebrate the spiritual success. Challenge us all to live lives of faithfulness. Until the Lord comes again. In Jesus' name we pray.